Well, it's good to be with you again, and if you take your Bibles and turn to the book of Acts, last week we uh, covered the first 11 verses, and this week uh, we're just going to hover over verse 8. So I want to tell you ahead of time that uh, the, the message is going to be heavy on application this morning, since we're just covering one verse. I do want to say thank you to the leadership of the class. Let me see. That would be Rex and Ryan and Taylor and Doug Williams. And, uh, of course, I want to say thank you to the two saints. <laughs> we left the parking lot last week uh, after, after church, and Lindsay said, my wife Lindsay said, Who would do that? Who would be so bold as to teach on the book of Acts when the man who wrote the commentary in the Bible knowledge commentary was sitting right in front of him. And uh, it's true. I, I took the book of Acts from Dr. Toussaint about 30 years ago when I was in seminary and still have notes and still use things that he taught me and that I learned uh, sitting under him. Uh, so he has a very special place in my heart for many, many reasons. But uh, it is an honor and quite intimidating. Um, anybody uh, get a little chilly on your way in today? It made me think of a story. I, I was brought up in Atlanta, and I remember that there were seven kids in my family. And uh, my father went to a different church. But my mother got us all ready to go to church, I remember. And we, it was cold outside, and she had on her heavy winter coat, and she got us all filed into church and all filed into one pew. And so we all got seated and then she went to take off her coat and had to yank it back on and realized that she had forgotten to put her dress on and all she had on was her slip. <laughs> I'll never forget that one. So it happens. Glad to see none of you are bundled up in your winter coats here this morning during the class. Um, as I said last week, when we, you know, have come to this class, uh, Dr. Dr. Stan always would start off with a little funny. I, I heard one that I'll share with you, and it was about a man who, um, he won the lottery. I don't know what he was doing playing the lottery, but he won the lottery and won an awful, awful lot of money, and, uh, but he was in bad health, and, and he was actually in the hospital. He had heart problems, heart issues. And the word came to his family that he had won, and they didn't quite know how to handle it or how to break the news to him. They were actually afraid that when they told him that he had won the lottery and won that amount of money, <laughs> that, uh, uh, that it might just push him over the edge and he might go on into eternity. So they, they talked amongst themselves and they thought, well, let, let's get the pastor Let's get the pastor to tell him. The pastor's used to dealing with uh, delicate issues, and, and the pastor can, uh, can break the news to him. And, uh, and so they approached the pastor, and the pastor agreed to do it, and the pastor went to see him in the hospital, pulled up a chair next to the bed, and they were talking, conversing. And, and he, said, uh, he said, Sam, um, what would you do if you found out that you won the lottery? I mean, just let's, let's just say, you know, what if you found out that you won the lottery? What would you do? And Sam thought for a moment and he said, well, he said, uh, 
I'm quite certain I'd give half of it to the church. The pastor had a heart attack and died. I'm going to begin reading in verse 6, but again, we're going to, we're going to focus on verse 8 this morning. But uh, the Bible says, And so when they had come together, they were asking him, saying, Lord, is it at this time you're restoring the kingdom to Israel? That's what was on their mind. And he said to them, It is not for you to know the times or epochs which the Father has fixed by his own authority, but signifying a contrast between verse 7 and verse 8. But you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria, and even to the remotest part of the earth, or literally the end of the earth. These words are the last words that Christ spoke on this earth. If you... Uh, if anybody ever asks you, what were the last words Christ ever said? These are those words recorded for us. You know, on many occasions I visited in homes where death was about to come. I've been there to hear the death rattle, if you know what I'm talking about. And I can remember times when the one who was about to die would move his or her lips and a loved one would usually go over and lean over and put his or her ear right down to the lips of the person dying so that they might listen. The last words of a person are generally looked upon as being very important. Let me give you an example. John Wesley said, last words, the best of all is God is with us. Adoniram Judson said, I love this one. I go with the gladness of a boy bounding away from school. I feel so strong in Christ. His wife, Anne Hasseltine Judson, said, Oh, the happy day will soon come when we shall meet all of our friends who are now scattered. Meet to part no more in our Heavenly Father's house. Sir Walter Scott said, Bring me the book. And when someone asked which book, Scott said, there's only one book. Last words are generally considered important because, after all, when a person's dying, he or she is generally not going to be flippant. Seriousness is the keynote of the moment. And here in our text, we find something very different. This is not a dying man. This is the Lord of glory. This is the person of the Lord Jesus Christ who had planned all things from eternity. He's about to step back into eternity and to leave his disciples here. So these are his last words. And if you look closely at verse 8, verse 8 is the key verse of the entire book and it forms a table of contents for the book. It forms an outline. Now, it, it's it's a way to outline the book. I'm not sure it's the best way. I agree with what Dr. Toussaint taught years ago that probably the best way is to go through and to see when the, Lord, when the church was persecuted. And that's where you make your division. 
in the book. The, the, the church was persecuted and then it moved out. It was persecuted and then the gospel began to spread to new areas. But this does form an outline and it says, but you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you shall be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and even to the remotest part of the earth, to the end of the earth. In Luke's mind, he was talking about Rome. And then from Rome, the gospel was pumped into other areas of the world. But in Luke's mind, it was Rome. Last week, I told a story about my son speaking in uh, the remotest part of the world. He wanted to preach the gospel in a place where the gospel had never been preached into a very, very remote area and hill tracks in a country that I can't even mention where people are basically Stone Age. And uh, that would be what we would call the ends of the earth for us today. Jesus taught them that he was going to heaven and he would be representing us there. And we were to be here on earth representing him. He would be in heaven as our ambassador, and we would be here on earth as his ambassadors. So when his disciples were occupied with the thought of an earthly kingdom, and of course their aspirations or their thoughts were of political power, that was the object of their ambitions, Jesus said to them, don't worry about that. He didn't say the kingdom is not coming. Because the kingdom is coming, and that's what he talked to them about during the days that he made appearances following his resurrection. The kingdom is coming, but what he told them was, don't worry about the when, because there's going to be a power that comes upon you that is far greater and nobler than kingdom power that you're looking for. And you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be witnesses unto me and you'll be witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost part of the earth. By the way, I was thinking it'd be a wonderful thing. Most of you probably know this scripture by memory already, but wouldn't it be wonderful if you memorized it before the class was over? You've heard it all your lives. It's not that difficult. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And then while he, when he had spoken these things, and while they watched, he was taken up from earth to heaven. It's the ascension. And the cloud, the Shekinah glory, not a rain cloud, but the great glory of God received him out of their sight. Now, I want to take just a moment to look at this promise and the fulfillment of it as it refers to you and to me today. It's heavy on application today um, because we need to obey this. We don't need just to study it. We don't need just to have it in our heads. Uh, we need to obey what we're, what we're learning here. Uh, you can tell Christ privately how much you love him and how much you want his power in your life. Uh, wait, I, I misread that. I had that written down. You can't tell Christ privately how much you love him and how much you want his power in your life and then refuse to speak up for him or acknowledge him publicly. Can I get an amen on that? I mean, think about that. 
What good does it do? It doesn't add up. It doesn't make sense. It doesn't compute. You don't tell the Lord privately, oh, I love you, I love you, and I want your power, and then not speak up for him. You know, there are times when it... it, it, it there, there are times when I've had to, to really force myself to speak for Christ. I, I hate to admit that. But most of the time, it's not like that. Most of the time, it would be, it, it is so obvious and so clear and so easy. And it's, it's so obvious that the Holy Spirit is in control that not to speak for Christ would just be a blatant sin and a blatant slap in the face of God. The other day I was pumping gas out in front of the Kroger where we shop and this fellow pulls up in a, in a big black Ford Raptor. You know, you know what I'm talking about? Anybody ever seen one of those? There, it's just a, to me, it's a great looking truck. Other than the Mustang, it's the best looking vehicle Ford ever made. And this guy pulls up and he's got huge tires on it and I guess I'm just a redneck at heart and it just looked great to me. And, and he's a young guy. And, and so I went over to him and, I, you know, I was pumping gas right next to him into my little Toyota Tacoma. My Tacoma looks like a baby next to his truck. And so I, I told him, I said, I said, man, you just have an awesome looking truck. I mean, it just looks great. And he said, well, thanks. He said, uh, uh, I, I like it too. And we started talking about gas mileage and and, uh, you know, I, somehow we got to talking about uh, what I did and what he did and the fact that I was from Georgia. And, and uh, he said, oh, I was, in, uh, I was in Fort Benning in Georgia, in Columbus, Georgia. And I said, yeah, I've been there. I know where it is. And we just got to talking. And, and, and uh, I asked him, I mean, it's just the most natural thing in the world for me to say, um, where do you go to church? He sort of hung his head and he said, well, I don't go to church right now. And I said, well, do you know you're going to heaven? And he said, well, I'm not real sure about that. I think so, which means usually I haven't a clue. So I said, would you read something for me? And uh, he said, sure. I went over to my truck, pulled out a little track, brought it over to him, gave it to him. And he said, oh, this is great. And I said, if you read that, it makes the message of the Bible so clear. And it tells you how you can go to heaven by putting your faith in Christ. It, 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 it explains you can't be good enough. You can't earn heaven. It's a gift that Jesus purchased for you when he died on the cross and shed his blood and paid for his sins and came back from the dead. Well, he'd finished pumping his gas at that point, And I said... Uh, you know, he said, thank you so much, and I will read this. Now, I didn't lead him to Christ right on the spot. I, I wished I could say I did, but I did give a witness. And if I had not have, had opened my mouth, it would have just been, Can you imagine me just spending the whole time talking about his truck and not bringing up spiritual things? What we need to pray for is we need to pray for boldness, not opportunities. All of us are surrounded by opportunities all the time. I mean, if we're going to go into the world and we live in the world, opportunities are all around us. Let me see, where was I? 
um, the, the Shekinah glory came and, and it took Jesus out of their sight. And, uh, and then 10 days later in chapter two, the Holy Spirit came upon them and he came upon them so that they would be witnesses so that they would even times when it wasn't convenient for them and it wasn't convenient for them that they would speak the gospel. And it's not always convenient for us. The other day I read about a man who looked out his window and he saw, he saw his next door neighbor in the backyard with a tub, with a chair pulled up next to the tub and he was fishing in the tub. And the neighbor came out on his back porch and he said, what in the world are you doing? He said, I'm fishing. He said, there's no fish in your tub. He said, well, I know, but it sure is convenient. Jesus promised them, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be witnesses. You will be my witnesses. Now, if you look at that, the question arises, is that a statement of fact or is that a command? Which one is it? Grammatically, it could go either way. But I want you to turn with me and look at a couple of verses. Look with me at Acts chapter 10. Just flip over to Acts chapter 10. I'm going to begin reading in verse 41, but the verse I really want you to pay attention to is verse 42, because it gives us a clue. 41 says, not to all the people, but to witnesses who were chosen beforehand by God, that is to us who ate and drank with him after he arose from the dead and he ordered us to preach to the people. So it seems like it's a command, doesn't it? That's where I come down. And solemnly to testify that this is the one who has been appointed by God as judge of the living and the dead. Go back to Acts chapter 4. Acts chapter 4. Look at verse 20. Peter and John here, and Peter speaking, says... In verse 20, for we cannot stop speaking what we have seen and heard. So it appears that this is a command. This is another um, great commission given with different words, same commission in the book of Acts. And if you're a believer, if you're a believer, the Lord Jesus Christ, in the Lord Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit has already come upon you. And whether you knew it or not, the moment you trusted Christ to save you, to take you to heaven, you were baptized by the Spirit into the body of Christ. It happens one time where God places you, he identifies you with the body of Christ. But there's another ministry of the Spirit called the filling of the Spirit. And that ministry can be repeated. It happens repeatedly. And if you're familiar with the book of Acts, and as you work your way through the book of Acts, you'll see that it happens time and again. The word filling means control. And when the Holy Spirit is control, you have power. Not to be a theologian, not to be a philosopher, not even to be a leader. Now, the Holy Spirit can help you with those things, and the Holy Spirit can help you in a thousand different ways. 
But specifically, according to this context, you have power to be a witness. That's what we're supposed to be. Nobel, who created the great prize for peace, made his money by discovering the then greatest explosive in the world. Nobel asked a professor of Greek what the Greek name for explosive power was, and he was told that it was dunamis. So he named his new invention dynamite. And dunamis is the word we have here in verse 8. And the key feature is found in the words that we just read that Peter spoke. We cannot but speak the things which we have seen and heard. It should be impossible for us not to speak for Christ, not to bear witness to the person of Jesus. He's the object of our witness. Whether you're in school or whether you're in the office, in the store, in a home, pumping gas, at the airport. My wife, uh, two weeks ago, flew to Fort Myers, Florida, because that's where our daughter lives. And our daughter and son-in-law just bought a house down there, a fixer-upper. And so my wife flew from DFW down to Fort Myers. And uh, she's sitting there. They're waiting to catch the plane. She starts talking to this little lady next to her. And uh, come to find out, the little lady is Jewish. And so Lindsay's trying to bear witness to the Jewish Messiah. And uh, they get on the plane, and sure enough, they sit next to each other on the plane. God knew what he was doing. God orchestrated this. I believe that with all my heart. God wanted that little lady to have a witness. And so they sit next to each other. They fly the two- or three-hour flight to Fort Myers, Florida. And uh, the little lady, by the end of the flight, the little lady said to Lindsay, Boy, that, that was the fastest flight I've ever been on. Well, it's because they were talking about the Lord Jesus. Uh, Lindsay asked her, she said, have you ever been to Israel? And she said, uh, I have not. And Lindsay said, well, uh, um, uh, in touch, in touch, insight for living. (laughs) Don't anybody tell Pastor Chuck that. (laughs) You're sworn to secrecy. Oh, boy. In the words of my wife, it's only going to get worse. (laughs) At any rate, she said, uh, uh, Insight for Living has a trip in March of 2018. And the lady said, you know, I think I'm going to try to go. So at any rate, uh, uh, Lindsay bore witness to Christ and and, uh, more so than she did the trip to Israel. But she just couldn't help herself. So whether you're in the shop or in the factory or in your office or wherever you are, You need to bear witness to Christ. I came across a story that I'm going to take a moment to read you um, because it'll blow you away. Al Bracca was a success by the world standards. He was a corporate bond trader for Canton Fitzgerald. But it wasn't until September 11 that the world came to know Al as a success in God's kingdom. Al's office was on the 105th floor of the World Trade Center, Tower 1. On the morning of September 11, his wife switched on the TV to check the weather, only to hear that a plane had just hit the Trade Center. Al had survived the bombing of the World Trade Center in 1993 and had even helped a woman with asthma escape from the building. Jeannie knew that Al would do the same thing this time. 
I knew he would stop to help and minister to people, she said, but I never thought for a minute that he wouldn't be coming home. A week later, like so many others who were in that building, Al's body was found in the rubble. Al's wife and son were devastated. Then the reports began to trickle in from friends and acquaintances. Some people on the 105th floor had made a last call or sent a final email to loved ones saying that a man was leading people in prayer. A few referred to Al by name. Al's family learned that Al had indeed been ministering to people during the attack. When Al realized that they were all trapped in the building and would not be able to escape, Al shared the gospel with a group of 50 co-workers and led them in prayer. This news came as no surprise to Al's wife. For years, she and Al had been praying for the salvation of these men and women. According to Jeannie, Al hated his job and couldn't stand the environment. It was a world so out of touch with his Christian values, but he wouldn't quit. Al was convinced that God wanted him to stay there, to be a light in the darkness. Al was not ashamed of Christ and Christ's words. Al shared his faith with his co-workers, many of whom sarcastically nicknamed him the Rev. On that fateful day of September 11, in the midst of the chaos, Al's co-workers looked to him and Al delivered. At the same time, Al too tried to get a phone call through to his family. He asked an MCI operator to contact his family. Tell them that I love them, he said. It took the operator more than a month to reach the Bracus, but the message brought them much needed comfort. The last thing my dad did involved the two things most important to him, God and his family. He loved to lead people to Christ. His son Christopher told a writer for Focus on the Family. You know, when I was in high school, I owned a motorcycle. As a matter of fact, I used to give Lindsay a ride to high school in the back of my motorcycle. But I did a very foolish thing. I ran it without oil. And it ran for a little while, but the repair bill was costly. And so it is in the Christian life. You can live without the fullness of the Holy Spirit, but the results are catastrophic in the long run if you're trying to be obedient to Christ. Someone once said this to me, and so help me, I think it's true. Most Christians wouldn't know the difference if the Holy Spirit absolutely left the world. If there were no Holy Spirit present and in our lives, they wouldn't know the difference. And yet we need to yield to him for the power to be a witness for him. God wants you to be filled with his power. And if you were thinking clearly, you would say, yeah, that is what I want. That is what I want in my life. I mean, think about what Galatians says concerning the fruit of the Spirit. It says the fruit of the Spirit, Galatians 5, 22 and 23, 
The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. If, if, if you took the latter six away and all you had were the first three fruit, love, joy, peace. If we knew we could really have that, we would jump to our feet and start cheering and saying, yes, that's what everybody wants. There's not a person on the face of the earth that doesn't want love, joy, and peace. Just the first three out of the nine. It's surprising and even shocking to me that the future of the church rested on the shoulders of these 11 disciples. I mean, a few fiery Galilean fishermen, a tax collector, a terrorist freedom fighter, and others. You know, we, we look at that, we read our Bibles, and we're tempted to say, Jesus, are you sure you know what you're doing? I mean, we look around at our church today. We look at ourselves we look at our elders, we look at our deacons, we look at our congregation, and we just want to ask, Jesus, are, do you know what you're doing? Are you sure? I remember when I became the chaplain at, at uh, Dallas Seminary, I had to go through an interview with the Academic Affairs Committee. And then we went over to meet with Dr. Bailey. And we sat in there and, and uh, he had gotten a report and um, we looked at him and we said, well, and I'll never forget Dr. Bailey, he's, <laughs> he's such a funny guy. He went, yeah, he went like that. And he said, he said, you're in. He said, you have to be voted on, but you're in. You passed all the tests. And we're thinking that's just fantastic because it's something that we were really excited about. And I'll never forget, we walked outside of the building and Lindsay literally looked up in the sky and she said, Lord, are you sure? <laughs> Christ's confidence then as now is not in who they were, but who they would be when they were controlled by the power of the Holy Spirit. It makes all the difference in the world. I can tell you this, in most of the spats I get into with my wife, I, I'm not controlled by the Holy Spirit. Because when I am, I exercise love, joy, patience, and self-control. It, it makes a world of difference. This has been God's program from the beginning. Ordinary folks bearing witness to the person of Jesus, ordinary folks doing extraordinary things because they're empowered by the Holy Spirit and they become witnesses and they want to reach the world for Christ. It's an ever-expanding worldwide witness. If you go back to the death of Jesus, the things, the, the people that surround, the events and the people that surrounded the death of Jesus... You have a denier, Peter. You have a doubter, Thomas. You have a bunch of deserters, with the exception of John. Uh, let's face it, you've got weakness, you've got frailty, you've got inadequacy. 
exactly the kind of people that God has always used. And I don't know about you, but that's very, very encouraging. If you go to Corinthians, he talks about the, the, the base things of the world. That, that's one of the most encouraging passages to me in all of the Bible. God using ordinary people to do extraordinary things. God entrusts his work in the world, not to the capable or the confident, but to the frail and the inept and the inadequate. That's encouraging, folks, because that's us. And don't think, well, I can't do it. You can do it. You can do it. You just have to say, Lord, I, the best I know how, I want to be controlled by your spirit. And I want to be a witness for you. And try it. Just give it a shot. I, I, I read about a fellow who was in the army, or he was drafted into the army, and, but he was madly in love with his girlfriend. And he, he, he told her, he said, I, I want to marry you. He said, but I'm, I'm going away now, so... To prove my love to you, I will write you a letter every single day. And for a year, he did that. He wrote her 365 letters. And then he was astounded to know that she had married the mailman. <laughs> There's just no substitute for the personal delivery of the message. Amen? There's a story that's told of D.L. Moody, and if it's not true, it ought to be. But I want you to think about it a moment. D.L. Moody stopped a man on a busy street, and he asked him if he was a Christian. And the man said, mind your own business. And D.L. Moody responded and said, this is my business. And the man looked at him and said, then you must be D.L. Moody. What a reputation. I would love that. Most mornings I walk on the levee beside the Mississippi River just before the sun comes up. It's a half a mile from my house to the river, and then I walk a mile down and back for a total of three miles. Most of our neighbors are still inside at that hour, but Bill and Sandra were frequently sitting on their porch drinking coffee. We would say howdy to one another, but not much more. One morning they called out, we missed you last week. I said, well, I was in Mississippi all week. On my return from the river, Bill said, does your work take you out of town a lot? Now up to this point, we had never met and did not even know each other's names. But I walked up to the porch and introduced myself. I'm the pastor of the church on Williams Boulevard, I said. Sandra mentioned something about belonging to the same denomination, and we chatted, and then I left. A morning or two later, as I passed their house and we waved, Bill said, what time are your services? I turned aside and told them all they needed to know about visiting our church. The next Sunday, they were in the services with their daughter, Casey, and soon became regular worshipers. One day, Bill called to me from the porch. How would a fella go about joining your church? 
Now, I don't know if the Holy Spirit was rebuking me at this point, but I was sure doing it to myself. This man has done everything but beg me to lead him to the Lord. I walked onto his porch, and as I was pulling up a deck chair, I said, well, the pastor would have to come out and sit with you on the front porch and talk with you about trusting Christ as Savior. We went through the scriptural plan of salvation, and Bill prayed that morning for Christ to come into his life and save him. Later, I prayed with Casey and soon baptized this entire family. Can, can you imagine? That's a pastor. And he, he just drug his feet to the point where the people were almost begging him, almost begging him to lead them to Christ. That's why I say we need to pray for boldness, not opportunity. Opportunities abound. You know, I, I'm not going to have you raise your hand, but, but I'm tempted to. When, when's the last time you try, made an effort, took a stab at it? I, I'm not, I wouldn't do that. I, I wouldn't embarrass anybody like that because I know I'm guilty and I know I, I miss far too many opportunities. Uh, my son and my daughter and my wife are the ones who have the gift of evangelism in our family. But we're still commanded to obey Acts 1.8, even if we don't have the gift of evangelism. When the Holy Spirit comes upon us, he gives us the power to be witnesses for him. Uh, I'm out of stuff. I mean, I can make up some stuff and we can keep going, but we're going to stop it there. We're going to land the plane and I'm going to pray. And uh, then you can be dismissed just a little bit early. Will you bow your heads with me, please? Father, first of all, I just want to pause and thank you so much that you loved us to the point of giving your life for us. Um, that's a message that I received when I was 15, and I've never gotten over it. Uh, it, it's just amazing to me that we deserve hell. That's what we deserve because we are sinners. We, we deserve hell, and yet you died on the cross and suffered hell in our place. You were our substitute. You took away all of our sins by shedding your blood. And I'm not quite sure why you chose that as the payment for sin, but that is the way you planned it. And so we thank you, and we, we thank you, Lord, those of us that have trusted you. Thank you for doing that for us. And it is entirely possible that we have folks here this morning that have never put their faith in Christ. They've never trusted in Jesus. And I pray that they, before this day is over, would do that. That they would understand that no one can be good enough. No one can earn heaven. And what we do doesn't even help out. It doesn't even play a part in the payment of sin. You paid for sin. We don't. Our need is complete. Our need is total. And so we trust you. And I pray that those who have it would, would do that, that they would put their trust in you as their Savior. Because you not only died for us, you were buried and you came back from the dead. So we thank you. And Father, for those of us that know you as our Savior, 
Help us to be obedient to what Acts 1-8 says. We ask for your power. We pray that we could be mouthpieces for you, that we could be your ambassadors, that we would speak for you, and that we would live lives that would back up what we're saying verbally. Help us. We all need your help in that area, all of us. Bless this class. Bless the two saints. We love him and we pray for Stan's recovery. We know he's working hard and it's coming. It's a slow process, Lord, and so we pray that, uh, that you would be with him and that you would, would encourage him. None of us can imagine what he's having to go through, so we pray that you would bless him. Father, thank you for this class and continue to bless it. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you.